Part 1, Chapter 1 of The Thread of Flame. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Simon Evers. The Thread of Flame by Basil King. Part 1, Chapter 1. Without opening my eyes, I guessed that it must be between five and six in the morning. I was snuggled into something narrow. On moving my knee abruptly, it came into contact with an upright board. At the same time, the end of my bed rose upward, so that my feet were higher than my head. Then the other end rose, and my head was higher than my feet. A slow, gentle roll threw my knee once more against the board, though another slow, gentle roll swung me back to my former position. Far away there was a rhythmic throbbing, like the beating of a pulse. I knew I was on shipboard, and for the moment it was all I knew. Not quite awake and not quite asleep, I waited as one waits in any strange bed, in any strange place, for the waking mind to reconnect itself with the happenings overnight. Sure of this speedy re-establishment, I dozed again. On awakening the second time I was still at a loss for the reason for my being at sea. I had left a port, I was going to a port, and I didn't know the name of either. I might have been on any ocean, sailing to any quarter of the globe. How long I had been on my way, and how far I had still to go, were details that danced away from me whenever I tried to seize them. I retained a knowledge of continents and countries, but as soon as I made the attempt to see myself in any of them, my mind recoiled from the effort with a kind of sick dislike. Nothing but a dull hint came to me on actually opening my eyes. An infiltration of grey light through the door, which was hooked ajar, revealed a mere slit in space with every peg and corner utilised. A quiet breathing from the berth above my head told me that I shared the cabin with someone else. On the wall opposite, above a flat red couch piled with small articles of travel, two complete sets of clothing swung outward, or from side to side like pendulums, according to the movement of the ship. I closed my eyes again. It was clearly a cabin of the cheaper and less comfortable order, calling up a faintly disagreeable surprise. It was from that that I drew my inference. I judged that whoever I was, I had travelled before, and in more luxurious conditions. Through the partly open door, beyond which there must have been an open porthole, came puffs of salt wind and the swish and roar of the ocean. Vainly I sought indications as to the point of the compass toward which we were headed. Imagination adapted itself instantly to any direction it was asked to take. In this inside cabin there was no suggestion from sun or cloud to show the difference between east and west. Because I was not specially alarmed, I did my best to doze again. Dozing seemed to me, indeed, the wisest course, for the reason that during the freedom of subconsciousness in sleep the missing connection was the more likely to be restored. It would be restored, of course, I was physically well. I knew that by my general sensations. Young, vigorous, and with plenty of money, a mere lapse of memory was a joke. Of being young and vigorous, a touch on my body was enough to give me the assurance. The assumption of having plenty of money was more subtle. It was a habit of mind rather than anything more convincing. Certainly there was nothing to prove it in this cabin, which might easily have been second class nor yet in the stuff of my pyjamas, which was thick and coarse. I noticed now, as I turned in my bunk, that it rasped my skin unpleasantly. 
With no effort of the memory I could see myself elegantly clad in silk night-clothing, fastened with silk frogs. And yet when I asked myself when and where that had been, no answer was accorded me. I may have slept an hour when I waked again. From the sound of the cabin I drew the conclusion that my overhead companion had got up. Before looking at him, I tested my memory for some such recollection as men share the same cabin have of their first meeting. But I had none. Farther back than that waking between five and six o'clock, I couldn't think. It was like trying to think back to the years preceding one's birth, one's personality dissolved into darkness. When I opened my eyes, there was a man standing in the dim grey light with his back to me. Broad, muscular shoulders showed through the undershirt which was all he wore in addition to his trousers, of which the braces hung down the back. The dark hair was the hair of youth, and in a corner of the glass I caught the reflection of a chin which, in spite of the lather, I also knew to be young. Waiting till he had finished shaving and had splashed his face in the basin, I said with a questioning intonation, "'Hello?' Turning slowly, he lowered the towel from his dripping face, holding it out like a propitiatory offering. He responded then with the slow emphasis of surprise. "'Hello, old scout. Say you've waked up at last. Thought you meant to sleep the trip out.' "'Have I been asleep long?' Well, "'Only since you came on board.' It was on my time to ask, when was that? But a sudden prompting of discretion bade me seek another way. "'You don't mean to say I've slept more than—more than—' more than, I drew a bow at a venture—more than twenty-four hours?' He made the reckoning as he rubbed his shining face with a towel. "'Let me see. This is Friday. We came on board late Tuesday night.' When John Marie, our bedroom steward, brought me down to the cabin, about half-past nine, you were already in your bunk doing the opium act. John Marie passed it up that you were a Frenchman because you'd spoken French with him. But now I see you're just an American like myself. So, I was an American, but I could speak French. I could speak French sufficiently well for one Frenchman to mistake me for another. I stowed this data away, noting that if I had lost some of the power of memory, the faculty of reasoning was unimpaired. Weighing my questions so as to get the maximum of information with the minimum of betrayal, I waited, before hazarding anything else, till he had finished polishing a face which had the handsome ugliness of a pug. "'When do you think,' was my next diplomatic adventure, "'that we shall get in?' "'Oh, hang!' The exclamation was caused by finding himself pawing at the foot of my berth in his search for the towel-rack. "'Well, Wednesday morning, with good luck,' he went on, feeling along the wall till he touched a kind of rod behind which he tucked the towel. "'With bad weather we'll not pick up the Nantucket lightship before Thursday night. The old bucket's supposed to do it in eight days, but you know what th that means in these times.' I didn't know, since these times did not distinguish themselves in my mind from any other times. But the Nantucket lightship was a reference I understood. We were sailing for New York.' As an American I was therefore on my way home, though no spot on the continent put forth a special claim on me. I made brief experiments in various directions—New York, Washington, Chicago, San Francisco, Boston, Denver, Seattle. Nothing responded. The hills of New England, the mountains of California, the levees of Louisiana were alike easy for me to recall, but I was as detached from them as a spirit from another world. These ideas floated— 
I choose the phrase as expressives of something more nebulous than active thinking, these ideas floated across my brain as I watched the boy rinse his toothbrush, replace the tumbler, and feel along the wall for the flannel shirt hanging on a peg. He turned to me then with the twinkling doggy look I was beginning to notice as a trait. "'Say, you'd eat a whale, wouldn't you? Haven't had a meal since Tuesday night, and now it's Friday. Anyone would think you were up in the Ypres region before the eats got onto the timetable. Pretty good grub on board this old French tub, if you holler loud enough.' While he went on to suggest a menu for my breakfast, I endeavoured to deal with the new hints he had thrown out. He had spoken of Ypres. He had referred to short rations. I remembered that there was a war. Whether it was over, or whether it was going on, or whether I had taken part in it or not, I couldn't say. But I knew there had been, and perhaps that there still was, a war. I tested myself as to that, while I watched him button his collar and put on his tie but all I drew forth was a sickening sense of noise, mutilation, and dirt, which might have been no more than the reaction from things I had read. Nothing personal to myself entered into these associations, no scene of horror that I construct took me in as an actor. My light-hearted companion would not, however, allow me to follow my own train of thought. "'Say,' he laughed, "'I know your name, but I don't believe you know mine.' The laugh grew forced and embarrassed. I've got the St. Darndest name for kidding a guy ever got stuck on him. Sometimes it makes me mad, and I think I'll go to law and change it. And more times I get used to it, till some smart addict breezes in and begins to hang it all over me again. What do you think it is? Give a guess now. He said he knew my name, and I didn't know it myself. That was the first of my queer discoveries that appalled me. If I didn't know my own name. But the boy laughed on. "'Give a guess now,' he coaxed, buttoning up his waistcoat. "'I'll give you two, but there mustn't be awful funny ones.' Nothing funnier than Smith and Jones having occurred to me. He burst out with, "'Drink water! Isn't that the darndest? I can't look sideways anything that isn't water before the other guy begins to kid me all over the lot. Many a time I would drink water, and I don't want anything else but water to drink. And I'll be hanged if I don't feel ashamed to have them see me doing it and me with that name. What do you know about that? As I was too gravely preoccupied to tell him what I knew about that, he began once more his curious pawing along the wall, till he seized a cap which he pulled down on his head. Oh, hang, he muttered then, that's yours. This, too, was information, enabling me to assume that the clothing which hung on the same hook was mine also. I looked at it with some interest, but also with a renewed feeling of discomfort. It was the sort of suit in which I find it difficult to see myself, of a smooth grey twill, sleek and provincial, there was that about it which suggested the rural bow. Having momentarily lost his orientation, the boy clawed in the air again, touching first this object and then that, fingering it, considering it, locating it, till once more he got his bearings. All this he did with a slowness and caution that forced on me the recognition of the fact, which I might have perceived before that he was blind. Nothing betrayed it but his motions. The starry eyes were apparently uninjured. Only, when you knew his infirmity, you noticed that the starriness was like that of an electric lamp, bright, but with a brightness not connected with intelligence. It was an aimless brightness, directed at nothing. The blaze of the quick pupils was like that which a window flashes back to the sunset, all from outside, and due to nothing in the house. 
Dressed now for leaving the cabin, he still had something to tell me. "'Say there's one man on board who'll be glad to hear you waked up. That's the doctor.' "'And not the ship's doctor,' he hastened to explain, "'but my doctor. Say he's about the whitest.' My questions were inspired not so much by sympathy with him, though that affected me, as by the hope of getting sidelights on myself. D "'Do you travel with the doctor?' "'Came over with him just before the war. I, I was his stenog. Name of Averill. Been in and out to see you five and six times a day ever since we sailed. Tell you all about him after I've had my breakfast. Off now to send in John Marie. Don't forget what I said about the griddle cakes. They can give them to you good and greasy if you kick. But if you don't, they'll just hand you out a pile of asbestos table mats. End of Part 1, Chapter 1